Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Beloved, this is the word of, the, of God. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We be seated. Well, God is good. Because this was the, te- yes, let's do that. God is good all, all the time. All the time, God is good. That's good. That was, uh, that was uh, nice. God is good. All the time. Uh, because he knew what we needed this week well before any of us could have anticipated this. This text was set out in the preaching plan a long time ago. And yet I don't know that there is a better text for us to be comforted with than this text. It's been a tough week. The most steely faith of us have probably been shaken. Things that are unimaginable have happened and I'm not even sure we're even in the middle yet. And so, today is an important day to remember that we live by faith. And this text is to help us see what it means to live by faith. Simply, this text wants us to see it this way. Living by faith means keeping our focus on Jesus, especially in scary times. So as we go through this passage, we're going to see that keeping focused on Jesus will give us the following seven assurances in every circumstance. That's all I'm going to do for introduction. And I know you might be afraid. Seven. He's never done seven before. I know how long it takes to go through three. Don't worry. The whole idea is I want you to be hit with these over and over and over again because the message is keep focused on Jesus because he is assuring you in many, many ways that you will be taken care of. So let us look at this text to see how keeping focused on Jesus gives us the following seven assurances in every circumstance. First, I want us to see in this text We are assured because Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. We see at the beginning of this text, Jesus sends his disciples onto a boat so that he can get away on a mountain to be alone to pray. Now, the text doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus is praying about. I think Jesus prays about a lot of things. 
And Jesus was praying about his own ministry, his own mission, his own uh, accomplishment of the goals that the Father had for him. But I am confident that in his time of prayer, he is also praying for his disciples at this time. We know that Jesus' disciples are a constant facet of Jesus' prayers. In Luke 12, we see that Jesus goes up to a mountain alone to pray all night. And it is at the end of that night that he is uh, uh, ready to call the 12 to be his uh, apostles. In John 17, when Jesus is faced most imminently with the cross, he spends a great deal of his final hours in prayer for his disciples' faith to be strengthened. We know now in heaven he is always praying for his own. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, God in Jesus is praying for us specifically, praying for us exactly as we need. I love Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. It says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, I might be taking that text and twisting it a bit, but I think it's appropriate to think when Jesus looks at his hands and the nail prints, he knows you. And you are as fixed to him as those nail prints which were made for your salvation. You are engraved on his hands. He cannot forget you. He knows you by name. He knows your needs. He knows your challenges. He knows your fears. And he is taking those to the Father in perfect intercession. Moreover, his prayer is effective. Peter will learn this firsthand in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus is headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says these words to Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's a lot of things to see in that text. One thing is to recognize that God does not stop bad things from happening. Satan was given permission to test Peter. Peter went through the darkest night of his life, and that went through Jesus' hands. But at the same time, Jesus is interceding for him, and he says, I have prayed for you, and, he, and it is because I have prayed for you that Jesus can say confidently to Peter, at the end of all of this sifting, you will turn again. You will come back. You will have restoration. You see, Jesus' prayer was what ultimately kept Peter from complete abandonment. His prayer is effective, and he is praying for us. He is our perfect high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus intercedes for his disciples. And the only way that we are comforted by that is remaining focused and knowing by faith. Jesus is praying for what we need right now. Whether it, whether it looks like that what we want is what we're getting or whatever, Jesus, who knows all things, is praying the perfect prayer for each of his own. The second thing I want you to see in this text is Jesus is standing above our troubles. Jesus is standing above 
are troubles. The disciples are out on the sea. The wind is rough. The waves are beating. They are making a hard progress, and they are in the middle of the night. They are at at 3 a.m., stuck in the middle of this lake, which claims many lives through storms and great waves. They are there in the midst of trouble. They are unable to control the wind and the waves that are beating against them. They are helpless. They can't get to shore but by an hour's worth of rowing in any direction. And as they are in this great distress, in the midst of all of this trouble, they see something that they cannot believe. They see somebody walking on the sea. So incredible it was, they said, is this a ghost? But it was Jesus. Can you imagine this picture? The disciples are struggling. They're fighting for their life. And Jesus is walking. The most unpanicked, unhurried posture. He is walking. He's walking on the sea. I don't even know how to, how to picture that. These giant waves. And he is just strolling across them like it's a path at a park. You see, the sea is is meant uh, to remind us of the chaos and the danger and the uncontrollability of life. That is is what the sea represented to to the Jewish person. It was a scary place. It fundamentally was chaos. I cannot control it. Disastrous things live in the sea. And so Jesus walking on that sea is to communicate to us no alarm, no harriedness, no panic, complete calm. What is uncontrollable to us, he walks over. This is what God alone does. Isaiah 43.16 says these words. If I put them in there, Isaiah 43, 16, yeah, there it is. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. God is known as the one who walks on the sea, and Jesus is showing and doing this. I am that one. I walk on the sea. You see, in this picture of Jesus walking on this terrifying sea, we are seeing that Jesus stands over our worst fears. And he stands over them calm and in control. And here's the assurance for all who are focused on Jesus. What he has in the storm is also yours. His victory and mastery over this is yours by faith. Romans 8, 35 to 37 tells us what this means. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, the text there is not telling us that these things don't come upon us, these bad things don't happen. That we, It doesn't say that we don't face danger or sword or pestilence or things like that because we have faith in Jesus. It is saying that nothing that comes after you, nothing in this world, nothing that ticks across your news channel has the power to separate you from the one who is in control and has mastered all things and has made you in him more than a conqueror. Amen? Third, Jesus is strengthening our hearts. In the midst of all of this, Jesus is strengthening our hearts. So the disciples, they they look at Jesus and they are terrified initially. 
They have no experience seeing somebody walk on the sea, and so they default to uh, their superstition. And they say it's a ghost. And probably what they meant when they said it's a ghost is we are that close to the end because there's a, there was, a, you know, a fishermen's tales that are passed around that if you die at sea, you just become a ghost that, that is trapped in the waters. So a little bit of, of folklore is, is probably informing them. But they're thinking, we are so close to becoming ghosts ourselves that we're seeing some of them. That it wasn't a ghost. Immediately as they panic and show their terror, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The disciples in this boat, they couldn't see anything. Visibility was nearly nothing. It's dark, windy, large waves. They felt completely isolated in the middle of this lake. They can't see anything. There's no light bulbs. And yet Jesus, on the shore, on that mountain, has his eyes perfectly on this boat, sees his disciples, and walks straight to them. No matter how big the storm, no matter how high the waves, no matter how dark the darkness, Jesus sees his people and can walk straight to you. He can come to you. And he does come to you. He strengthens these disciples by saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the way that we've rendered that in English hides something that I think is theologically significant. When he says, It is I, in the Greek, it is ego eimi, which is the words I am which, as we know, is the way God disclosed himself in the Old Testament to Moses. He says, I am who I am. Jesus comes and he speaks. Take courage. Why? Because I am is here. God is with you. And that is the strength that he gives to their hearts. I am with you. His presence is the disciples' strength. And his presence is with us always, inseparably, by his spirit, who he gives to all believers, and in his word, who says page after page, take heart, do not be afraid, it is I. And so, as we stay focused on Jesus, let us use these times of additional available time to hear him speak to us, to let the scriptures speak and strengthen our hearts. One of the most beautiful verses, Psalm 4610, be still. And know that I am God. Be still. Spend time knowing God. Knowing Jesus is God. Knowing that Emmanuel is God with you. Still, and know that I am God. Uh, fourth, in these times, keeping focused on Jesus gives us the assurance that Jesus is teaching us trust. Jesus is teaching us trust. Let's look again at verses 28 to 30. These are unique to Matthew's gospel. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. 
So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Notice in this famous passage, the moment Peter turned his attention from Jesus, he began to falter. And there is the thesis of this whole sermon. It is a powerful image. He is focused on Jesus, and he is able to face the wind without fear, to face it so fearlessly that he is able to join his Lord on the water. But the moment that his focus goes on to the wind and the waves, he begins to sink. Jesus is using this event to teach Peter, the disciple that he has said is going to be the rock of his church, the disciple that is going to be the, 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 the great evangelist of the early church. He is using this to teach him, trust me more. You cannot over-trust Jesus. That is what Peter has to learn. That is why Jesus says to Peter these words that seem a bit callous. When he says, after picking Peter from sinking, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The lesson here is not, how big is my faith? The lesson here is, how uh, uh, certain am I in Jesus? How, How much do I know Jesus as my Savior? It's being attached to the object of your faith, Jesus, that is the strength. And so, Jesus wants Peter to know, I have to be the biggest thing. I have to be the most certain thing that you know to fulfill your discipleship. The storm is what Jesus uses to teach this lesson. This is part of Peter's development. Yes, Peter fails and he falters here. I love that the scriptures include the failures of the disciples. It makes it real. Your faith fails and falters. You you experience setbacks just like Peter did. But these these moments that are are hard and and, and quick to, to, to cause us to panic, they become places where Jesus teaches us in another way. I take care of you. I am with you. Take heart. Every one of us, no matter how little experience in faith we have, has been through something where we realized, I should not have become fearful. God was with me then. This is just another one of those. And we will come through it. And we will come through it with greater trust. We will come through it with greater faith. And in the midst of this, We have a testimony. We are witnesses of who we know walks on the water. This is a time where many who have said, I don't need the hope of the church. I don't need the hope of the gospel. Things are fine. I'm under control. I've got it. It's going to be sifted. And people are going to look. They're going to look for the people that have hope, that have a a quiet sense of assurance. And that should be us. That should be us as we are learning more and more to trust. And so this opportunity is my prayer that these Uh, events happen more and more as we live in this world. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We have lived in a desert period where nobody is interested in the hope that lies within us because they have been able to find an artificial hope here and there and anywhere. But we are entering times where I believe Asking, what is the hope that you have 
is going to be coming out. This is a time for us to practice and grow in trust. To face the storm, our trust in Jesus must be certain. Now this belief, this this, this call to trust in Jesus is not a call against being vigilant and doing the responsible thing. As we have talked about, these are part of loving our neighbor. I don't see any tension on that. But I see having our hope strong in Jesus is the way that we will have a clear-eyed way to see the storm and respond with love. The way that we respond with love today is not to say, oh, I'm going to hug you anyway, or I'm going to tell you that this, is, uh, this isn't a big deal. It's to say, you need toilet paper? I got extra. You need food? I got extra. Even if it's the extra that you know you probably need. Though when you do stuff like that, when you show that your hope, your confidence is in Jesus who walks on the storm, that you will give, give happily, give sacrificially perhaps. That is how you will show, and they will say, what is the hope that is in you? This is an opportunity. In the third century, Rome experienced a, a terrifying plague. And, and it, it, it just restructured society. And people ran away from the sick. Except for one group. The Christians while everyone else was running away from loving and caring and administering medicine and compassion, the Christians came in. They took the risk of their own lives to be able to be uh, servants for those who were sick, who weren't even Christians. We're telling that story 17 centuries later because it is a powerful witness. I don't know what that is going to look like. This is a different context. But let us, in this time, grow in our trust in Jesus in such a way that we are able to show love that the world is too afraid to demonstrate. What are we at now? Fifth. Fifth. The fifth assurance that we have in every circumstance. Jesus is saving us from death. Verse 31, the first part of verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And I love that, Pete, that, that, that Matthew includes the words immediately. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. From the, the perspective of the, uh, of the author Matthew, this story is in here because sinking in the sea is is an image of death. The moment Peter starts to sink in the middle of the sea, it is the beginning of death for him. He is going to die unless Jesus saves him. And in the Gospels and in the Scriptures, death is the ultimate fear. It is the ultimate enemy. But we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the ultimate enemy. Because Jesus has conquered death by his cross and resurrection. These words are for the Christian. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. We do not face this time afraid of death. Because if it comes and you are in Christ, you are still in victory. But before I go further, let me be quite clear. COVID 19 might have your name on it. 
It might be the ticket that punches you. I don't know. So it might have your, it, your name on it. And so the most critical question that you have to ask and know and be settled about right now is whose name has your soul? Is your soul captained by you yourself? Or is it captained by the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the ones who have cried out, Lord, save me, that have the assurance that death sting will not come to them. Beloved, it is times like these to know who has your soul. Sixth, the sixth assurance that Jesus is offering us at all times is Jesus is supplying us peace. See in verse 32, Jesus, uh, uh, 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. The wind ceased at the moment that Jesus got into the boat. What does that mean? The wind the storm ended exactly when Jesus was ready for it to end. It's my time. I'm now in the boat. Stop the storm. What this means, what we must know confidently, is that the storm, the winds, the virus, it can only go as long as he permits. It is under his sovereign control. When this virus does what he has determined for it to do, just as when the waves did what he determined the waves to do in this scene, it will end. And yes, I am saying confidently that this virus is going to accomplish something. It is going to give glory to God. It is going to do something redemptive. There have been many things said on, on Facebook and in suggesting maybe this is going to bring back family time. Maybe this is going to smash our idolatry for sports. I mean, how, how hard is it to enjoy ESPN right now? I, I, I enjoyed a meme I saw the other day that uh, I discovered this person sitting on my couch with three days without sports and found out it was my wife. You know, I mean, that's, that's great. Let, let's talk to our wife. <laughs> let's enjoy dinner. Let's play Monopoly together. When will this end? I don't know. But I know that it will end when Jesus is done with it. The real lesson that, that Matthew has for us in this scene of, of, of the wind suddenly ceasing is that the peace is not ultimately in the environment. The peace is not ultimately the wind and the waves quieting down. The peace is the one who got in the boat. The peace is in Jesus, always. So whether we are in the middle of the waves, whether we are in the middle of the storm, whether we are in the middle of the outbreak, the question is, who are we in the middle of? Are we in Christ? Because this promise of peace is always for us. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, I know I'm reading all of our favorite verses, but they're here for such a time as this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What kind of peace is available to us by prayer? It is the peace which surpasses all understanding. It is bigger and more immeasurable than you can imagine. And that peace will sit upon you as you labor in prayer, as you take 
your concerns and your anxieties from your own forehead and lodge them into the throne of God. Here's a, a wonderful little discovery that I, uh, I have made. 20 seconds of hand washing, wash your hands for 20 seconds, is the right amount of time to pray the Lord's Prayer. You can, if you pray the Lord's Prayer while you are washing your hands, your hands are clean, and guess what? You've just spent a little more time in prayer. I, I uh, uh, gave this advice to my kids the other day, and it is beautiful to hear coming out of the bathrooms, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm not trying to give you another way to abuse the Lord's Prayer, but what if you took that time praying, or to take that time that you're washing your hands to trigger you to pray? What a wonderful thing to be placed again and again into the throne room of God where the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, flows down upon you. Jesus is supplying us peace. Seventh, Jesus is centering us in his glory. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of of God. When this whole thing is over, the only thing that has their attention, the only thing that has gripped them is Jesus. They are focused on him. It is all they can see, God's glory dwelling and shining out of Jesus overwhelms them. The storm disappears. Who can pay attention to the storm when the one who quiets the storm is right here for us? And what do I want to do now but worship? Beloved, I think of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, a fascinating passage. 12, uh, 1 and 2 we are told, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here again we are told to face life's challenges and to persevere, look to Jesus. But even more importantly in this passage is what we are told Jesus did to endure the greatest trial, the greatest tribulation that has ever fallen upon this earth, and that is the cross that he was on. How did he endure it? How did he not fall apart? It is told to us right here that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And the joy that is set before him is, I am going to be in the presence of my glorious Father in just moments. I'm going to be back in perfect worship with my Father. Do you see what a powerful anecdote worship is to fear? If it can take the agony and torture of the cross and make it endurable, then beloved, focusing on worship, focusing on the glory of God, fanning that that awareness and that desire and that hunger is going to make fear wither and dissipate. Let us set our eyes on him. Wherever we are, I, I don't know what's coming. I, I, I mean, th there could be restrictions that change all sorts of things of how we gather and how we worship. But it happened right here in a boat. 
This, this worship can happen anywhere, whether it's gathered, whether it's in homes, or perhaps right now we're looking at a season of family worship. Fathers, seize this opportunity to have family devotions. Your kids are going to be going crazy. Take some of that time and energy and place it into singing and into studying the catechism. Again, we have these available to you. And in reading scriptures. Be filling your home with the word of God and the glory of God. Your kids need to see that the glory of God and the worship of God is the greatest anecdote to uncertainty. And you can do that wherever you are. Now, I'm not, you know, you know, <laughs> here together is precious and, and irreplaceable. But there are also other places you can do this. And don't neglect them. So as we look back, keeping focused on Jesus gives us the following seven assurances in every circumstance. These assurances, I, in, I, I hope that you have. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is a standing above our troubles. Jesus is strengthening our hearts. Jesus is teaching us trust. Jesus is saving us from death. Jesus is supplying us peace. Jesus is centering us in his glory. All of this you have as assurance right now. And so to conclude, I want us to dwell on some of the best written words that have come out of the Reformation. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one. I'm going to read it first so that you can hear the words, and then we're going to do it a second time, and this time you're going to say it with me in unison, okay? Question one, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with, bo with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Beloved, let us read this together. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. This is the assurance that we have Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen? All right. Now with that, we, uh, we are going to spend uh, a time that would have been used for communion to uh, spend it in, in prayer. I do want to remind us that um, the reason that we are suspending communion is uh, until we figure out a way to do it that we think doesn't uh, live in tension with our health concerns, uh, we, that are current and pressing, that we're, uh, we're going to wait to do that because we do not want the taking of the Lord's table to be a division within the body of Christ. We want everybody to take it together. We are covenantal in our understanding of the Lord's table. And if, if some 
uh, are unable to take it because of their, their health concerns, then we are not able to take it together. And that's, that's just not a, a context that I think honors the sacrament. So with that, um, I want to lead us through a time of prayer because the Lord's table is a means of grace. Um, another means of grace, it is not a sacrament, but a means of grace is prayer. It is something that we as a body are able to do together, and we are able to, and, and, and through it we receive God's grace. And so I want to spend a, a moment or two here just praying for all of the, the uh, issues and concerns that we have seen come up in these last few days. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful that these seven assurances are given to all who know your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, first of all, that everyone here, everyone who hears this message, knows your Son, Jesus Christ. That they would hear the promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that they will not put anything in the way of immediately crying out, Jesus, save me. For today is the day of salvation. Father, I pray, use this time to search our hearts and to make us aware of what is most certain, the hope of the gospel, that we might believe in it and that we might live in it. Father, I pray that you would make us the body of Christ that as we go through this world with these seven assurances, we would go through this world in a way that makes our hope in you captivating and compelling and a witness that draws people to ask us, what is the hope? Father, make the name of Jesus known most of all in these times. But Father, we pray knowing that there are many hardships ahead. We know that there are those who are already sick, and we know that across this world there have been many who have uh, been quite sick and even have perished. Father, we pray for these families that are grieving. We pray for these families that are in uh, great duress. We pray for these various patients. We pray for their healing. Father, we also lift up to you uh, all of the healthcare workers that are going to be called upon to do more and more with less and less if things go as some think they will. Father, we pray your strength, your comfort, your assurance, and your peace at the end of each of their days. Father, we pray for the many uh, workers that are hourly and the people that are employed and, and uh, are, are finding parts of this economy that they have depended upon suddenly uncertain or even shuttered. Father, we pray that you would show yourself as a provider, that you would show yourself as their daily bread. Father, that you would provide manna of whatever sort that would be to these people. Father, we pray for families who are now restructuring their, their days and their plans as uh, schools have been canceled. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give dads a clear understanding of how to use this time redemptively. Show us, Heavenly Father, how to, how to lead our families spiritually, to teach the word, to encourage our kids to pray and to trust. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us find uh, reliefs from some of the pent-up pressure of, of cabin sickness and things like that that can come quickly. Father, that you would uh, show us ways to love one another even as we get grumpier. Father, we pray for all of the supply chains in our world. We see quickly how little reserve there are in some things. 
We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would restore those things. Keep them flowing. And also, Father, help the, the people not put extreme self-interest above the care of their brother and sister or their neighbor who needs those supplies too. Father, I pray that you would give the leadership of our nation, of our state, of our parish, wisdom and courage and clarity to lead well. I pray, Father, for the same for us as a church. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would make this a time for the church to shine that you would give us opportunities to share our hope, to share our generosity and our compassion in the name of Christ. And Father, I pray most obviously for this virus to, to not go and not do what some fear it may do, that you would turn it back, that you would halt it, that you would say this storm has gone far enough, Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would also settle hearts from hysteria. But, Heavenly Father, that you would also give us the conviction to love our neighbors and, and go the extra step in taking some of these measures that affect our way of life. Finally, Father, we pray, be glorified. It is hard to imagine how something like this can lead to glory, but you are the one that turns the cross, the instrument of murder and torture and death, into a symbol of salvation and love and grace. And so we look expectantly for how you will glorify your name and how you will lift up your son Jesus and how you will beautify your church in these coming days. Be glorified. Pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, the one who is in the boat with us and in whom we are more than conquerors. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.